Welcome to NC15 from CFA Society in North Carolina. I'm your host, Pedro Bernal. This podcast brings you an unbiased lens on finance and investing through short conversations. Our guests are the most interesting and accomplished people. In a concise format, we discuss the top issues or salient questions impacting our guests. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Clay Grubb, CEO of Grubb Properties. Founded in 1963, Grubb Properties is a real estate investment and development firm. Since 2002, it has made investments in more than $2.4 billion of real estate, including commercial property and apartment units. The current investment strategy is born from the firm's experience in both multifamily and office investment and focus on development of link apartments to drive investment returns. It is not much of an exaggeration to say that Clay was born to be in real estate. He began collecting mortgages for Agora Properties, his family's housing company, at age 12. Clay's father built single-family homes in redlined neighborhoods, offering financing to families who could not secure loans from North Carolina banks in the 1960s. In those formative first years in the business, Clay learned lessons in compassion and how precious the security of owning a home is. Though growth properties has evolved in the past 50 plus years, it still holds those values sacred. Clay refuses to allow for idle obedience to the status quo. He is devoted to finding noble ways to combat this issue, from directing money to help those affected by gentrification to establishing emergency lines of credit. Grubb is pushing back against a broken system. Clay earned his BSM in finance and economics from Tulane University and his JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law. He lives in Charlotte with his wife and two children. We talked with Clay about his highly praised book, The Booming Real Estate Market, emphasizing values that transcend time and much more. Welcome, Clay. Thank you for joining us today. Let me emphasize how excited we are to have you on NC15 Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You wrote an amazing book called Creating the Urban Dream. This book shares your decades-long career of how to provide good homes for the many people who need them and create dynamic neighborhoods where they can better their lives. Can you share with us how your vision started, its roots, and how it has evolved? Yes, thank thank you, Pedro. It's um, you know, it's been quite a journey, and I was very fortunate to have a father that was uh, thoughtful and compassionate, and in his pursuit of his entrepreneurial endeavors. And when he started out, he actually, you know, I say he started his company by buying a house with a yard big enough to build two in, and. He moved into one, he sold one, and he rented one. And that was kind of how the business started. But he but he really saw that the greatest opportunity or the greatest need was primarily for Black families in what were considered to be redline neighborhoods. Back then, the banks would not provide financing to these families, just blatant discrimination. And so he saw a home building opportunity if he could figure out how to get them financing. And so he started a finance division that would match whatever the advertised rate was at the bank. And my joke was the way he was able to have a a not-for-profit finance division was he broke all the child labor laws. So 
yours truly, instead of playing football and basketball after school, collected mortgages after school and did amortization schedules by hand. And uh, but it taught me a lot about compassion because if somebody broke their leg and they couldn't go to the factory, you know, you realize they couldn't make their mortgage payment. So you would say, okay, we'll waive the payment for three months, curtail it. And then when you're back healthy and working again, you know, you need to start paying an extra 10 or $15 a month and, and get caught back up. So we had hundreds of families that were able to eventually own their homes outright that would have not have otherwise had that opportunity. And so as the business evolved, done a lot of different things through the years, mixed use, high-end, luxury. But coming out of 2008, 2009, you know, I really realized that I used Marion Wright Edelman's quote, uh, who's the great civil rights leader from Bennettsville, South Carolina, um, and the founder of the Children's Defense Fund. Her dad was a preacher and used to always say, if you focus on where the, there's need, you'll always have job security. In looking at that, we realized that there was going to be a massive need for housing, primarily at a at a value base that these young people could afford in urban areas. And so coming out of that, we decided to focus in on what we call essential housing today, which is really the missing middle housing for folks making between 60 percent of median income and 140 percent of median income. And we're building that through a brand we call Link Apartments. And we're currently taking that national and we're, we're currently building in California, Colorado, Tennessee, Georgia, up to D.C. And, and even into New York City now. One of the things about your book separates itself from others is the ability to put purpose behind a mission and a vision. I, I think there are many books out there that can tell a great story, such as, the, such as your book. But very few books actually talk about solutions and give concrete examples of what to do to improve the environment. I want to emphasize a couple of these ideas to moderate construction costs, ideas to create more efficient, affordable housing, ideas to create equity, ideas to free up resources and streamline bureaucracies, ideas to provide intelligent financing solutions and to improve the regulatory framework. Those are very concrete strategies. How did those come about? And do you think the environment makes it more difficult to achieve your vision? Well, you know, they're, they've come about over, you know, obviously the 40 years of experience I've had in it and continuing to experiment with different options. And, you know, the advantage of I guess having gray hair is you have experience and so you're able to try things. And And I think the, the biggest difference in our success is that we have been willing to take risk. You know, one of the boldest things that I, I think we did, it was, uh, this is probably, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, we decided to start capping everybody's rent that lived with us over five years. And we currently have about 400 families with capped rents that their rents can increase more than the CPI index in any given year. Have one property that 30 uh, percent of the folks on that property have capped rents. So you're like, hey, you're in an environment where rents are increasing dramatically. How can you afford to have 90 some families that aren't paying the current market rent? 
intuitively you'd say, okay, we're leaving a lot of money on the on the table for our investors. But the reality is, is that has been one of the top performing properties over the last several years, because for the other 70 percent, folks are are clamoring to, to live there. You know, it really is a community. You've got, you know, 90 some families that, you know, are self-policing this community, uh, making sure it's safe. But they're telling their friends and neighbors how nice it is. And and I said, you know, we 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 experience significantly greater demand for, for living there because we've created community. And we've also saved a ton of money because we haven't had to pad all the downturn time when somebody moves out, the damage that you've got to repair and new carpets and paint and all those are, are very expensive turn costs. Here we've created equity for hundreds of families, but yet we've created greater value for our investors than we would have had we not created that equity. And so it's things like that that, you know, are really kind of eye-opening. We can create a more resilient, safer investment for our investors and create a more resilient and safer community for the neighborhood and the city. It's a win-win all the way around. And we try to think like that whenever we're approaching anything. We talk a lot about financing because you know, it's really, you know, the big crime coming out of 0809 was we basically at a time when homes were the cheapest in decades um, or even maybe a half a century or more, uh, we basically eliminated the opportunity for the average American family to secure financing to, to take advantage of those cheap homes. So the result is you had millions of homes basically now owned by Wall Street that could have been owned by millions of families that would have really changed the trajectory of their lives. And we still have that opportunity, Dave, and the home prices are significantly higher. We've got historically low interest rates, yet we still make it extremely difficult for that first time buyer to secure a home loan or that person that that's still struggling. You know, it 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 creates dislocation in community. And so, you know, from our standpoint at Grub Properties, you know, we're focused on, you know, working together as a company to try to solve these solutions. And, you know, even with our apartments that we're building, we're very focused on efficiency. So we build just six floor plans, whether and they're the same floor plans, whether they're in LA, San Francisco, New York, Charlotte, Raleigh, or Greenville, South Carolina. And our clientele is pretty much the same. She will live in Raleigh where her parents are for a couple of months, then she'll move to New York or she'll move to DC or she'll move to Charlotte. Usually she'll move several times over the next 10 years. And so we love to capture her to continue to live with us. But the reality is, is especially the female still suffers a gender pay gap. They are cost conscious. We try to to build super efficiently, drive down that cost, but still have very nice amenities. One of the big pushes that we have is getting people out of cars. The the car itself, I think, is, is probably the number one impediment to the affordability of housing in the U.S. The average American spends almost $10,000 a year on their car. And if you're making $40,000 a year and 25% of your after tax is just getting spent on your car, 
it doesn't leave much for, for anything else. Heavy emphasis on bicycling and transit. Copenhagen Eyes actually is the premier cycle infrastructure designers in the world, and we're their only North American private client who brings them in and helps not only design our cycle centers, but bicycle infrastructure around our properties. Yesterday, we had the opening of the Gwendolyn and Chapel Hill, which I'm excited about, was named after Gwendolyn Harrison, the first Black female to enter UNC. She actually had graduated with a master's from Berkeley and was going there to get her PhD and showed up and realized that she was Black and rescinded her admissions. But her being sophisticated and probably more like mid-20s, fought it and was able to get in. And so that was a great story. But as part of that opening, I realized we built this this incredible bicycle infrastructure there at Glen Lennox and Chapel Hill. And because of that, we were able to convince the Department of Transportation to put a stoplight on 15501 exclusively to stop the cars for the crossing of bicycles and pedestrians. And that may be the only uh, example of a major highway like that in North Carolina, but hopefully it won't be the only one going forward as we'll see uh, significant use as people get out of their cars and ride their bikes, ride the bus. Glen Lennox is a great example. We, uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, my head of uh, development was saying, hey, we bought the nicest bus stops we can find. And I'm like, well, how much were the bus stops? And he's like, they were $15,000. I'm like, well, how much did it cost us to build a parking space? He's like, Clay, you know, a parking space costs $25,000. What if we spent more money on really nice bus stops, maybe $100,000, and got more people to ride the bus so we could build less parking spaces? Wouldn't that save us money? We continue to focus on ways to reduce the amount of parking that we have to build, which allows us to reduce the rent we have to charge, encouraging people to, to get out and and do things like riding bikes, which are much healthier, uh, not only for the environment, but for them personally. And so, you know, those are, those are some of the examples, and, and there's many others. I mean, obviously, the, the biggest challenge in the U.S. for housing in general is the fact that the inspections are done municipality by municipality. And so every single municipality interprets the code a little bit different. And many actually even use different codes. Modular housing for multifamily would, seems like it'd be a great idea, but you can be in two towns, literally 100 feet apart, and one would accept modular in one form and fashion, and the other might not. And so it makes it difficult in this country to really scale a lot of the uh, the ways that we could help drive down more housing, and and I hope that you know the leadership starts to understand that, and we start to work on the bureaucracy. I, I my book I pick on HUD a lot because uh, they deserve it. The amount of red tape they put around what their mission is to help urban housing become more affordable actually I think does more to discourage the affordability of it than it does to encourage it. And and so that's frustrating, but I, I actually have some good friends that are, are going to work at HUD and I'm hopeful that they're able to roll up their sleeves and 
and, and, and make some make some changes there and some improvements. Throughout your book, you give so many different examples of success stories other than structural things. Are there any other things that uh, we could learn from past mistakes? Well, I think, I mean, the one that comes top of mind, I, I won't, it certainly, I, I don't view it as a mistake by any means. I actually think it was one of our greatest successes. And that was last year when COVID hit, time when everyone was scared. 30% of America doesn't pay rent. Uh, had a colleague that said over 90% of his property hadn't paid rent by the middle of April. And we basically took it seriously, planned early, and tried to put our head on and, and, and really, as you say, put purpose behind it. So what's our purpose and what's our goal? How can we do this compassionately? And so we really came up with the, the realization that we were going to have 4,800 families, they were going to be really scared. They're going to be reading about others not paying rent. And so how can we come up with that win-win solution? On March 15th, announced uh, to all of our residents that if you prepay April's rent, we'll give you a 10% discount because we know that you're scared, you're nervous. We want to help provide some relief. But at the same time, you know, we're fearful of, are we going to be able to pay our mortgages? We had over 70% of our residents, 3,200 families, prepay their April rent and take advantage of that. That gave us ample cash to not only pay all of our mortgage payments timely, we realized that we had cash to pay our vendors timely. So we reached to all of our vendors and said, hey, we know that you're scared. A lot of our peers will be slow paying you and you'll be even concerned of whether you ever get paid. We're going to put all of you on fast pay. So if you can get us your bill, you know, by the first of the week, we will pay you by the end of the week. And when April 5th came, it was actually on a Saturday. And I looked at last time the uh, 5th had come on a weekend. Uh, which had been about six months prior to, we had less than 50% of our residents had paid by that weekend. But yet we had gone through five days with 70% of them already paid. So we were sleeping well. Uh, the CNN headline, if you actually read the whole article at the very bottom, we were quoted as the company that had had taken a different position. And we ended up collecting over 98% of our rents for April. And we did that by also realizing that our remaining 30% were probably the ones that need the most help. So we reached to all of them and said, as long as you pay all of April's rent by the end of the month, we'll give you 10% credit toward May's rent. And then so not only did we collect over 98% of our rents in April, we collected over 98% of our rents in May, June, July, and every single month for 2020. And actually ended the year with the highest occupancy and the highest net effective rent in the history of the company in a time when there was significant dislocation and turmoil. And so to me, that was a way of a great example of where compassion played a role and creating a far superior business model. Because at the end of the day, you know, if your residents aren't healthy, you can't have a healthy the company. 
And um, we did have 27 folks that had not paid March rent. And so we came up with an innovative model there as well. The, they had stopped evictions. We realized, you know, we needed access to these apartments. People do not want to have their credit records destroyed. So we reached to those 27 folks and said, hey, if you'll move out of your apartment in 10 days, we'll waive everything you owe us for March, we'll waive everything you owe us for April, and we'll give you $1,000 for you to you know, move back home or move in with somebody. And, and we had eight residents take us up on that. We had 17 residents, you know, say, no, we want to stay. We want to just get on a payment plan. And we worked with them and, and put them on a payment plan. And then unfortunately, I had two residents that were, were bigger challenges. Out of 4,800, I felt like that was a huge success. And we were able to move forward. And we did something similar with our commercial folks. Um, we basically reached out to all 200 of our commercial tenants and said, if you've paid, if you pay all of April's rent, we will waive one month of rent starting in May for every six months you extend your lease. You know, probably 90% of them called us to thank us that we were being proactive and giving them solutions. And a little over 10%, about 24 of them actually took us up on it and extended their leases. And so we actually had a record year for commercial leases in 20, as well as a record year on our residential side. So we so we feel very fortunate. And we just realized, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're we are providing a, a very important role for for these families. And many of them, biggest mission we have today is is trying to produce more link apartment. Today, that it's reported that we have as many as five and a half million uh, shortage of homes in America. A friend of mine who runs uh, housing for McKinsey and, and lives in Shanghai, he said the other night to me, he was like, look, the housing crisis in America is the canary in the coal mine for Western democracy. We can't figure out how to house Americans you know, we've got major, major problems. And you see it with the homeless everywhere. LA alone has 80,000 homeless just for a single city. You know, I live in Charlotte with homeless up and down Tryon Street. We've, uh, we've actually built relationships with a number of them, as well as you know, out in LA and hear their stories and, you know, realize how important it is for us to to figure this out because, you know, the next generation, especially these young kids, if they're not in stable homes, they don't grow up to become productive members of society. And, and we can't afford not to have that. So, you know, I think those are just some of the examples doing and applying. And uh, and so right now we're, we're our goal is to, to build 28,000 Link Apartments by 2028. And I've got a great team that's working on that. And and the beauty is doing the same floor plans over and over. You know, we feel like it's rolling out like Chick-fil-A's versus being creative developers every time and, and trying to do something from scratch. But but even with that duplicative model, we're very sensitive to the exterior designs of our properties and trying to make sure they fit in with the neighborhood and, and that they're designs that will last that, you know, 50 years from now, they'll they'll look better than they do today. And so we're excited about where where we are and, and where we're headed as a company. So so thank you for shining the light on that. So real estate is one of the most talked about, debated, and research topics and in investments. What do you see for real estate now and into the future? What other things do you see us as, as challenges that that we haven't thought of or that will be coming challenges in the future? 
Well, I mean, from just starting with, from an investment opportunity, I mean, you know, the the, uh, the laws of supply and demand are economics 101. If you don't have enough supply and you have more demand, you've got pricing power that's going to create a lot of value. And you're seeing that both in uh, last mile industrial with all the techs trying to uh, get product into the urban areas. And, and obviously seeing that with housing, whether it's single family housing, rental housing, any kind of housing. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, we, we barely even build a million homes a year and we got a, a deficit of five and a half million homes. Yet we're creating more households every day than we're creating homes. And, you know, the demographics really drive that. There's more 30-year-olds in America than ever in the history of America, which is kind of the prime renter for us. But the reality is, is there's more 14-year-olds in America than there are 30-year-olds. So that's really the pig and the python that's driving a lot of this. Um, we also remain very bullish on office. You know, it's still questionable. It's hard to imagine, you know, what is office going to look like uh, after COVID? Are people going to go back to offices? You know, we found that energy that comes with being back in the office is, is, is amazing. The camaraderie create. So so we see, you know, the largest companies, the most sophisticated companies are taking advantage of that today and securing lots of new office space. You know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, I mean, they're the biggest signers of leases in, in New York City, place you, you wouldn't even think of them have an office. And uh, and the reality is is they they're seeing opportunity. They know folks are going to want to come back. So so we think that there's going to be some great opportunities there. I think the hotel industry is going to come roaring back. We're, we're, we're bullish on where the future's headed. The, the biggest thing with real assets, though, is, you know, what's going to happen with the dollar? Got so much inflation in the system. Commodities uh, all over the board. You know, lumber was the big one. It's come way back down significantly, but it's still at a significant premium of where it was pre-COVID. We can't even secure windows. Our guys are running around buying bathtubs and putting them in warehouses. So we don't know if we're going to have bathtubs to deliver for our next apartment community. Um, so there's a lot of dislocation out there that's going to create a lot of inflation and a lot of it's permanent. A friend of mine from Ukraine Tuesday was talking about this guy had 50000 whatever their currency is, and was looking at buying a car and decided not to pull the trigger and then realized the next day it, it was even more expensive and couple months goes by and basically he could buy some sugar and, and some food with that same amount of money because of what inflation was doing to erode the currency. And so hard assets obviously are an incredible hedge against uh, that type of inflation. So so we we feel very, very good about being in the real estate business and the importance of real estate in any investment portfolio going forward. Uh, especially with that risk out there. Do you think of it at more as an inflation of a basket of goods versus previous inflationary cycles in history that were more energy driven? So the basket of goods would be lumber, copper, et cetera. Uh, whereas in the 1970s, we were more concerned about just pure energy costs. Yeah, it's it's really. I mean, the energy cost is obviously a huge factor in, in anything, and you saw this, you know, immediate swing of 
of what oil prices has done. But, you know, as we diversify away from oil and to more sustainable forms of energy, solar, wind, look, every day you don't capture the wind, you know, that wind's gone forever. You know, every day you don't drill full oil, that oil is still in the ground for you to, to tap tomorrow. And so, you know, the faster we can capture a lot of those things, I think will make us more resilient and, and less susceptible to, you know, the oil shocks that we had in 74 and 79 and, and those types of things. But, you know, actually, the, the, the number one issue that I'm hearing in America is, is there's, there's, there's no transportation. Harvest time in uh, many of the um, like northwestern areas. And so this, the flatbed trucks are up there. So, you know, I have folks that say that, you know, sh- they're having to shut down their, their wallboard plants because there's not enough trucks for them to ship the wallboard and they don't have any place to put it if they keep making the wallboard, yet there's a shortage of wallboard throughout America. So so we've got, you know, challenges from from really a lot of it stems just from labor and, and our ability to access labor and, you know, and, and the fact that we have been so strict on immigration the last decade or so, because you need a certain amount of immigrants to help fill and grow these jobs. And uh, and we see it a lot in construction. You know, the average age of a plumber in America a couple of years ago was 54. Well, I mean, those plumbers are going to be retiring and we don't have any new folks coming into the trade yet. They could make, you know, $100,000 plus a year being a plumber today in an urban market, you know, much more than you could earn you know, working at a hotel or, or a lot of other service jobs. Yet, uh, you know, we've been pushing so many people into the, the service arena. So, so we've got challenges. And and I think that, you know, like I said, you know, just what we're going to see with apartment rents and home prices, you know, that inflation is, is going to be permanent and continue to, to, to push hard on the inflationary numbers because we just don't have any any way to build five and a half million new homes uh, anytime soon. And I don't see our household formation slowing down given the demographics of where we're at today. So I think we've got serious inflation challenges, but you know, we also are, uh, you know, technology continues to play a big role. AI is playing a, a much bigger role today. And and so there will be technologies that will help alleviate some of that inflation, but it'll 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 be a bumpy ride. I'm I'm bullish on on where we're headed, certainly over the next decade. And my last question, Clay, you're regarded as a visionary and one of the most respected real estate business and financial leaders in the country. What legacy do you want to leave for others to follow and aspire to achieve? Well, thank you for. Uh, Phrasing the question the way you did, I'm not sure uh, how accurate that is, but the the reality is is that you know I, I, I'm proud of what we've achieved at Grub Properties, and even more excited about what our plans are for the future and how we plan to continue to grow and how we plan to continue to help families and make a difference. You know, every year we're, we build a habitat house in the community. Um, we just built the 300 habitat house in Chapel Hill this 
past year, which was a lot of fun. I mentioned the, the honoring of, of Gwendolyn Harrison yesterday with the ribbon cutting of, of that new building, but it was really nice. You know, her two of her sons and one of her daughters came and we had about 20, 25 of her neighbors. And unfortunately, she's no longer with us. Uh, but it was really great. Her uh, her daughter told her life story, had everybody in tears. And then her son got up and we're like, well, how, how can you top that? And he got up and animated and read uh, one of her poems. And, you know, it ended with something like, you know, if you want your name in the stars, you have to start by engraving your name on the hearts of, of your fellow man. And and he read that phrase uh, a couple of times as, as, as the ending. And uh, and that was really powerful. You know, his son came up and was like, look, you know, you're you are engraving your name on people's hearts. And so I think at the end of the day, the greatest legacy we could leave is that every human is is important. Their, their details are important. Our residents, you know, there's not a there's not an unimportant resident. You know, we wouldn't have a job if we didn't have folks living and working with us. And if they weren't happy to live and work and excited to come to where they work and where they live, we, 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 our jobs would be significantly harder. And we have a great team. And so it's really fun to see them grow, continue to evolve. And uh, so I just feel very fortunate. You know, a lot of my team members have been with me 25 plus years. So they, they really are family. My, my legacy, hopefully, is that, you know, we can continue just to improve a little bit every day. Well, thank you for your time, Clay. Your stories and insights are a wealth of knowledge. Pedro, I, I really appreciate it. This was um, a lot of fun. You've done a lot of incredible work yourself. I feel like, you know, I should be the one asking you questions. But uh, thank you for uh, this opportunity to, to, to discuss what we're doing at Grub Properties and our, our plans for Link Apartments in the future. Oh, absolutely. I hope you join us again in the future. Terrific. Terrific. We want to thank North Carolina 15 listeners for your feedback and look forward to bringing you the best leaders to our podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on your favorite service provider. We love hearing your thoughts and it will help others find us. Also a reminder, Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This material may contain an assessment of the market and economic environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. Forward-looking statements are subject to certain risks and uncertainties. Actual results, performance, or achievements may differ materially from those expressed or implied. This is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual. This material should not be considered a recommendation to buy or sell securities or a guarantee of future results. The opinion expressed is based on information from sources believed to be correct, but no guarantee can be made to their accuracy. The information contained in this report is not written or intended as financial, tax, or legal advice. You are encouraged to seek financial, tax, and legal advice from your professional advisors. <laughs>